the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, today we're going to embark upon a study of a particular person that I believe has tremendous examples for us in how that we can make a great life. I look at a crowd like this, and I know most of you that are here, you like to read books. And some of the books that you might read, you often will look at the title and say, that's an interesting title. I wonder what other people had to say about the book or the writer. And so you'll look on the book jacket or maybe on the inside flap, and you'll see what others had said about that particular book. Well, you know, they did that here even in Scripture. If you have your Bibles now, you might want to open them up to the book of Luke. And then if you want, you can put your finger in John chapter 1. And we're going to kind of talk about this particular person and who was recommended. Well, if you'd like to look at it, you're going to find it in Luke chapter 7, verse 28. And here was the recommendation. It says, For I say to you, among those born among women, there is none greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What a tremendous recommendation. And we're about to read the story about a man named John the Baptist. And someone said that he was the greatest person that ever lived up to that time. Now think about all the people that lived up to the New Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Deborah, many people that were tremendously famous and tremendously influenceable for the Lord and for the kingdom of God. And yet he said, that particular person, John the Baptist, is greater than all of them. And then the rest of it says, you look to the future, that all of those that are us, like you and me, he who is least in the kingdom is still greater than this person. So that's quite a sterling recommendation for the man John the Baptist. But I wonder who wrote that. Now we see Luke put it in there, but who actually said that? Well, it was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, Jesus Christ has divinely designed you and me in his mind before we were ever in our mother's womb. So he had a plan for every person who ever lived and living now and those that will live in the future. And with all of that that he planned, he said that this John the Baptist is great. But you and I, we can be even greater. Even if we're the very least, we can still be greater than this John the Baptist. So what I'd like to do for this week and two weeks from today, I'd like to open up this wonderful, exciting life of the man John the Baptist and see what made his life great. And perhaps some of you that are listening today to the Word of God, you might be looking at your life and saying, you know, I'm sensing now that my life is kind of in a maintenance mode. I'm kind of like a snowflake in the blizzard of humanity, and I'm just like another worker, a cog in the wheel on my job. And my family is kind of, we're all right, we're not too bad, not too good, we're just kind of rocking along. But some of you might be saying, you know, I'm sensing that there is more that I can do to honor you, as the song said. And you might be at that place right now, but you're scratching your head. What are some areas that I could begin to work on through the power of the Holy Spirit and the glory of the Lord? Well, I'm going to give you three today. 
Now, some of you want a little bit more than the three I'm going to give you. So there's going to be some points underneath each one of these. So some of you might say, if I could only do three, these are the three, own those. Others of you that will say, I want to own those, but is there something else that I could look at? Of this great man, John the Baptist, that I could see in my life that by God's power and grace, I could become that as well. So I believe there is something for you no matter what level you might be on. Now, also in this group, I know that most of you know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And I will tell you that the majority of this message today is designed specifically for those who are already blood-bought, born-again believers. However, those of you that are on the outside kind of looking in about the faith, I encourage you to stay with me because all that we're talking about, John the Baptist, is really about the Lord and you getting connected. And so if you'll follow that, you're going to see how at the end of this sermon, you are very much a part of this whole message about John the Baptist. Well, let's begin. What makes a great life? First of all, knowing who you are and whose you are. Now, as we go through this passage of Scripture, we're going to dip back to John 1, verse 6 and 7, and then get into John chapter 1, verses 19 through 34. But I want you to see as we look at the life of John the Baptist, what a great man of God. I've been living with him for the last, I guess, couple months since I've been preparing this message and just sensing what God would have for me to have for you. And it's been so exciting. So knowing who you are and whose you are is so very, very important. So that's my question. Do you know who you are, the way God wired you, why God wired you, for what God has wired you? And do you also know as a believer in Christ that you truly belong to the Lord, whose you are, not just who you are, but also whose you are, that you belong to God? Well, I believe John the Baptist knew that. And if you'll follow along now in verse 6 of chapter 1, it says here that he was a man sent from God. That's a good place to begin. I guess you could ask that question of yourself. Do you know you're in God's mind before you were born? Do you know that God has a purpose for your life? Do you know that God has sent you to this world and right now he has sent you to Hawaii and he has sent you to this church and that through this church and what God is teaching you, you are a person that is sent from God? It was interesting that that's the only time it's really found in John that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. What is really astounding is you go through the Gospel of John, you're going to find the phrase that God sent his son, that Jesus was sent of God the Father. Not once, not 10 times, not 20 times, but according to Roy Zuck and John Walver, they said that that phrase, that Jesus was sent from God 39 times. So we know even God, through Christ, had a purpose. And of course, his purpose was to come to this earth to pay for our sin, rise again from the dead, and give us eternal life and forgiveness by faith alone, and then to come into our life in such a way to live that life out through us. So Jesus had purpose. John the Baptist had purpose. And I believe, according to God's word, that every one of you have been designed by God, and you're sent by God, and you have a purpose as well. Now, if you go further in studying this whole thing about him, you're going to find that this man that was sent by God was not anybody who was maybe by himself a sterling individual. He wasn't some great priest. He wasn't a scribe. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a prophet. He says he wasn't the Messiah. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But he could talk about all the things he was not. And you would think if you're sent from God, you're going to have all these credentials and all this stuff going for you. He had none of that. In fact, he really didn't even dress very well because he had camel's hair all over him and he would eat locust and honey for breakfast. Can you imagine that? And here was this man that God said, he is sent from God. So I don't know what your background is. I don't know what your style is. I don't even know what your personality is, your ethnic background. You, stu- you too can also be someone sent from God. Now, there are many ways, we, if we had more time, to show you how John was sent from God and the indelible planting of God's Spirit upon him and how he was used. But I believe in many ways you can see others. When you look at John's life, he just preached the word as a prophet in such a way that people would flock to him to hear him, even though at times he'd call them snakes. 
Even though he'd point his bony finger of wrath at them, they were drawn to him. And that's not too unusual because there was a man by the name of Savinarola back in the 1400s. He really saw that the church was so wrong doctrinally, so he began to teach sound doctrine of salvation by faith alone. People flocked to him, while at the same time others were really, really upset at him. In fact, he was so strong in what he was preaching that in 1496 at the carnival, Carnival of Florence, he began to preach about truth and honesty and holiness. And so the people began to bring, believe it or not, their pornographic material to him there in Florence. Yes, they did have pornography and objects and all of that even back then. And what they did then is they had this big bonfire and they called it the famous Bonfire of the Vanities. And so he was a man sent from God. And if you fast forward it and you bring it to the United States, you're going to find in the 1700s there was a man that tried to preach the gospel, but the church was so messed up that he couldn't preach it any longer in the church. So he decided to go to the hillsides. And he opened up God's word and he told the people going to heaven was by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And so they followed him and he got a big crowd and he couldn't handle them all. So he started going from place to place to place and starting home churches. And that name was John Wesley. And then... On February 20th in 1966, a man came here to Honolulu and he took a little room and he rented it out. And from that, there was a church that was planted. And that's Jim Cook. And we're here today as a result of that. And he'll be at camp and be speaking here as well. And I can only imagine that God has his hand on your life even before you were born. And for you to discover, Lord, what do you want me to do with it? It may not be to call out people to burn their pornography. And it may not be where you're going to go up here to the poly and preach the word. It may not be that you'll rent a room down there. But it may mean this, that you will be wherever you are living a separated life unto the Lord and doing it the way God is leading you because it's not us that makes you. You are a man sent from God and a woman as well. So I look at his life and I say, he wasn't unique because of his background. I don't think he was so unique because of what he wore, what he ate. I believe John the Baptist was unique because he was sent from God like all of us have been sent now, ordained to bring forth more fruit. And the second thing, not only was he sent... And that's what he was supposed to do. He was obedient to the sending of what God wanted him to do. So perhaps maybe the uniqueness in our life might be, what is God calling you to do? What does he want you to do as far as character in God's word? And your uniqueness might be that you're going to step into God's word and be all that God wants you to be, whatever that life might be. I can't tell you what it is, but I know if you want to be unique, you be one who is sold out holy on fire for the Lord, and God will use you. But he was more than just a man sent from God. Look at second. He was also someone to be a witness to the light. Look in verse 7. It says, This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. I like that term, the witness of the light. We already established a couple of weeks ago that Jesus is the light, so he's supposed to be the witness or pointing people to the light. Now, that's an easy one for me to illustrate. If you've ever been in a situation where it was nighttime and all the power went off, but you're in a building and perhaps wanted to get out or get down the stairs or had to get out of the building, it's the law that we have signs like we have here called exit signs. And perhaps you wouldn't know where to look, but maybe some of us would know kind of where the sign was and we'd be saying, oh, we got to get out of here. There's a problem. It's dark in here. Look, there's the exit sign. There's the light. Go there. I know that probably none of you have ever been lost in a cave and felt like there was a cave in and you couldn't get out. But sooner or later, way off in the distance, you see the little bit of light at the end of the cave. And we'd be saying, there, 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 there's a light over there. And we'd be following it. Well, in a sense, John the Baptist was sent from God to people like you and me to say, look, 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 there, there, there's the light. And go follow the light. You can escape danger. Well, it goes on and on about all the different illustrations, but it'd be the case that he'd be the light. Okay, he's sent from God. He's supposed to point people to Christ. But what else would he be? Well, let's go now a little bit further in John. John chapter 1, verse 22. 
a delegation came to John the Baptist and says, now, who do you say that you are? And he answered in verse 23. Can you see it? He said, I am a great man. No. He said, I'm nothing more than the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And then he uses a passage from Isaiah that said, a voice of one crying, calling out in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Now, for some of you, as you read that, that's kind of interesting, but I don't know if it makes a lot of sense. So let me see if I can make some sense for you. First of all, when he was in the desert, it wasn't Palm Springs desert. It wasn't litter and gl- lit up and glittery like Las Vegas desert. It was a raw, lost desert with people that lived in this desert that desperately needed God. And he was a voice of one crying from this desert. Please look to the Lord. Now, what they would do in the Bible days, and you could even see it now, and I'll show you what I mean. In the Bible days, when a king was going to come from one place to the other place, but he couldn't get there very easily. There'd usually be an entourage of workers and military people that would go ahead of the king. And what they would do is they would try to make the path to that destination as straight as possible. So if it was real hilly, they'd try to bring it down. If it had a lot of dips in it, they'd fill it up with rocks. If it was real bumpy out there, they'd try to smooth it out. So whoever wanted to get to the king, and if the king wanted to get to them, it'd be an easy path to do that. Those are Bible days. That's what he's talking about. Make straight the path to the Lord. I am one crying in the wilderness. Make a path to the Lord so you can get to the Lord. Now, they do that very similarly, but not exactly here today. Those of you who were on island when um, APEC was here, how many were on island then when APEC was here and they're having all the entourage coming from the airport, even our president? What did they do along Nimitz Highway? It looks beautiful. Those of you that were in Kalakaua, what did they do along Kalakaua down in Waikiki? They made it beautiful. And what was the big question of us locals? I wonder what it's going to look like two months after this is over. Do you all remember that? Well, that's what they were doing. Very similar. Making it rated. Making it clean. Making it easy so everybody could see. Now, stay with me. If I'm going to have a great life, I need to know who I am. And what I am is nothing more than a man. Nobody's special. I'm a man. You ladies, you're a woman. But you've got to believe you're sent from God. And secondly, I hope that we would see that we're to point people to the light. We are not the light. In a way, we are. You know, we're the light of the world. We're not to put ourselves under a bushel and all of that. But even our light is so that people would look to us, but we can't save anyone. So now we reflect them to the light. And then at the same time, we would see ourselves as just humble voices. That's all. Nobody real special. Just someone out there who wants to tell someone else about Jesus Christ. Now, there's something else. If you stay in the passage, he also was, besides just a voice in the wilderness, he was what we'll call a baptizer. If you go to verses 24 through 26, now this gets a little bit different from you and me because in a sense we might, as spiritual leaders of our household or church, we might baptize people. But most of you probably won't baptize anyone. So maybe there's a little disconnect. You can say, I can see I'm a man or woman of God. I can see that I'm going to point people to light. I can see the fact that I might be a voice, but I don't see that I'm a baptizer. Well, I'm going to show you how you can make a a reasonable application to that, even though maybe exegetically it's not extremely clear. But let's go back to this first about John the Baptist. Now, if you look at it, verse 24, it says this. Now, those who were sent were from the Pharisees, a delegation of guys who were trying to trip up John the Baptist. And they asked him, saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ? You're not Elijah, nor the prophet. And John answered them, saying, I baptize with water. Now, what's important, I'd like to speak a little bit about baptism because next Sunday we will be baptizing. From this passage and many other passages, we believe that baptism is done by way of immersion. But you need to know that when John the Baptist was baptizing, his baptism, 
is far different than the baptism that we'll be doing at the beach. Not because it's so far apart, not because the water will be either fresh or salty, not because it's me or John the Baptist doing it. The reason for those baptism was different. For example, if you go back in history and you study more about this, you're going to find that there were a lot of Gentiles who wanted to become Jews and be part of that covenant. And part of that covenant was they would go through a cleansing process, and that would be baptism. They would see that they're sinners, and they wanted to be a part of that. Not that they would get saved by that, but they wanted to identify with the Jewish people. So they would go through this ceremonial cleansing. At other times, there'd be Jews, and this is who he's really speaking to now. I know it was the Pharisees who came, and he's baptizing with water. But this time, these were Jews who felt so far out of the covenant that they wanted others to know that I'm a sinner, and I need to be cleansed, and I need to come back into the covenant again. Not to get saved again. But they wanted to be, again, ceremonial clean. So he went through that baptism. It had nothing to do with, I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior. But it did have this. That baptism was with water. That baptism was with much water. That baptism was by, here's the key word, immersed. It was under the water when they got baptized. Now, when we baptize next week, this is our baptism. It follows other scripture. We will baptize not by sprinkling, not by pouring. We're going to be doing it by way of immersion. Why? The word baptize in your Bible, when you read baptize, you just see baptize. But actually, there was a problem with it. When the Bible was written, it was written, New Testament now, in Greek, common Greek. There are two levels of Greek, by the way, and I don't want to give you a Greek class, but one level is your high Greek, and a lot of times only intellect, in, in, intelligentsia could understand that. So it was written in common language so that anybody who knew a little bit of Greek, any Greek that spoke Greek, they would understand that Greek. And what happened when it was written in Greek, they wanted to put it in the language of the people. So King James at that time and his translators decided that they were going to translate the Bible into English. And in the process of their translation, they came up to the word and they said that this word here means to whelm, plunge, immerse. But there was a problem because in King James' day, the church wasn't doing that. They've gotten so far away from Scripture, they were just sprinkling. Some were pouring. But rarely would they ever plunge or put them under the water. So they came to King James and says, if we say what this really means, there's going to be a tremendous uproar. We need to plunge. We need to put them under the water. So King James, not wanting to have a problem, he did what they call transliterate the word. Transliterate means you take the word, the Greek word, baptizo, and you don't translate that into what it means, immerse. You just take it and you make that Greek word into an English word. So it went from baptizo to baptize. And so really, that was the struggle that they were having even in the 1600s. But it really means that he would come alongside and he would plunge or well. Now, the big question is, why do we do that? There are a lot of reasons in Scripture that we can come up with that are all legitimate. One reason could be Jesus Christ was baptized. In fact, when he was baptized, he had to travel a great distance to the place to be baptized, which was the Jordan. There had to be water there, which there was. Scripture says in Mark that there had to be much water. And finally, not only much water, he went down into the water to be baptized. So we see that there had to be plenty of water and there was an immersion going on because that's what the word baptizo means, to immerse, to whelm, to plunge. So he did all of that. So those being baptized are saying, I want to do as much as I can to be like the Lord. He was baptized, I'll be baptized. Another way we get baptized is because when we trust Christ as Savior, we are a blood-bought, born-again believer. Can you look up here for a moment? Let my left hand for a moment represent Christ, okay? All right, my fist is going to close because that's Jesus dying. My arm is going to go down. He's placed into the tomb, and my arm's going to come back up again, which is going to say that he resurrected. Now, we know Jesus did that. When we place our faith in Jesus Christ, according to what we now call the identification principle, it's as if we died with Christ, we were buried with Christ, and we rose again with Christ, because now Christ did all of that for us, and we are, here it is, in Christ. And so that all happened at that moment. 
Now, when Jesus died, he didn't go into the water. We understand that. He went into the tomb. Now, they didn't sprinkle dirt on his head. They didn't pour dirt on his head. He went into a whelm. He plunged. He went totally into the ground. And so our identification is not so much to his water baptism, although that still would be legitimate enough for us to be water baptized. We want to be like Christ, follow Christ. But that's not the strongest argument. The strongest argument is I want to identify with Christ in my position in Christ. I've trusted in Christ, so therefore I died with Christ, was buried with Christ, and I came and I'm now alive forevermore with eternal life with Christ. So now I want to identify with him outwardly in my salvation experience of what happened inwardly to me. Well, we don't build these great caves around here. So the closest to it, based on the immersion with water and all the history of that, even in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament times and culture. So now we go into not a cave, we go into a watery tomb. So now what I'm doing outwardly is telling the world that what I've done inwardly. So when we take someone, we then take them as if they're dying. We put them under the water and we pull them back out of the water. We do it because Christ was baptized. We do it to identify with Christ. And the last we do it, and this is probably the greatest argument, is this. In Matthew 28, it says, be baptized. So the idea is Jesus speaking to say that we need to be baptized. So how old should you be to be baptized? When you can fully understand the meaning of what it means to be baptized, you understand it's not by works that you get saved. It's not by water baptism that you get saved, that you are identifying with Christ, that you want to walk in a new life. Then you are at that particular age. And you parents and those of you that are spiritually watching over kids that don't have parents that are doing that, then together you can make that decision when that child is ready. So it's not like uh, Johnny's being dumped. I want to be dumped. No, it's not like that. It's a spiritual thing. You get saved once, you get baptized once. And I hope that that would be the case for all of you. Now, in Romans chapter 6, when it talks about the baptism, verses 1 through 4, it does talk about being baptized and then in a walk in a newness of life. So there's almost like a double meaning, kind of like two little bars in the, uh, in the Peter Paul Mars candy bar thing. The one is, I'm identifying with Christ, I trusted him as my Savior, I'm being baptized. The other is, I'm also giving a witness to the world that not only have I accepted Christ as my Savior by faith alone, I'm identifying with him, but I'm also identifying with him that I'm going to walk in a new life. Now, listen carefully. It is not saying that Christ didn't have a new life until he was baptized by John the Baptist. What it is saying is that when you read Scripture in context, Jesus Christ, when he was baptized, came out of the, the watery experience in the Jordan. There was a, a voice from heaven that said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And it was at that time that we see the beginning of the ministry, this new life of ministry now of Jesus so now I'm being baptized as I look to my past by immersion and say, I'm identifying with Christ by faith alone and I want the world to know. Just like Jesus died and rose again, I'm going into the watery grave just like Jesus. But I'm also now saying that my life is different because of that. Now you may not go into a formal ministry like a, a, a preacher or a missionary and all of that, but it is saying that I'm different because of that, which is also important when you deal with your children that they realize they can't be the same way they were because they're not the same person. They're choosing now. On this, to say, I'm fully identifying with Christ. So that's a little bit about John the baptizer. Now, a moment ago, I told you there's a loose connection to this for where you and I would be. And here's where I might put this. First of all, a man sent from God. All of us are sent from the Lord if you know Christ. Secondly, we should be pointing people to the light. And thirdly, we ought to be a voice in the wilderness making straight so people can come to Christ, doing all that we can to make it easy for them to come to faith in Christ. Not reduce what they have to do for salvation, but don't put obstacles there that aren't there. And then finally, the baptism part. You may not be a preacher, may not be a parent to baptize, 
But what you can do is to bring people to an experience in their life when they fully know Christ as Savior, they know what baptism is about, and making sure that that is part of a thumbprint on their experience of their walk of faith with Jesus Christ. So somehow you're involved in that in their life to do that. So again, what makes a great life? If all you take away from this is this one point, knowing who you are and whose you are. Well, let's look at the second one here, if you don't mind. There's really three here. So the second one is pretty important. I think it might help you as well. And that is knowing who you're, you're not or who you aren't. John knew who he was, but he also knew who he wasn't. If you have your Bibles, would you like to follow along in verses 19 through 24? I'm going to read this to you, and then we're going to kind of open this up. And I'm going to show you the ways that we can apply it to our life, because not only do we need to know who we are, we need to know who we're not. Here's what it says. Now, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, No, I'm not. Are you a prophet? And he said, No. And they said to him, Well, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? And he said again, I'm nothing more than a voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord. So who wasn't he? All right, let's look at the first one. He wasn't the Messiah. We already noticed that. They asked, who are you? You the Messiah. Obviously, we know he wasn't the Messiah. And uh, the only application you might make for yourself is that you, you cannot save yourself. You're not the Messiah, the Savior. You cannot save anyone else. And I really like that about John the Baptist. While they said, are you this? Are you the Messiah? He said, no, I am not the Messiah. Basically, I'm not the head person. I am not the Savior. I am not the Lord. I am not the Christ. And so as much as you develop this great life and God begins to use you because you've surrendered to Him, you're going to find that people are going to look to you to solve their problems. They're going to look to you to give them all the answers. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear.